I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Scott Miller, author of Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. Some of the most successful people have had mentors, yet many may not feel that they have had a mentor in their life. But what exactly defines a mentor? Could it be a mentor moment between an intern and colleague at the office, or maybe it's a conversation in the grocery store with a successful small business owner, or perhaps it is that person that you go to regularly when you have the real and honest conversations about your personal and or professional life. Scott Miller distills essential learnings from some of the brightest minds like Seth Grodin, Susan Cain, General Stanley McChrystal, Trent Shelton, and other top business minds and thought leaders of our time. He's currently Frank Covey's Senior Advice Advisor on Thought Leadership. He also hosts the Frank Covey-sponsored On Leadership with Scott Miller, the world's largest and fastest-growing weekly leadership podcast. Welcome to the show, Scott. Nice to have you on. Catherine, thank you. Thank you for the spotlight, and I love the way you set up the mentor-mentee conversation. Well, good. Okay, well, that's. Uh, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it in the way that you like it, uh, because I want to, I think most people do think of mentors in that kind of very formal way, and the first question is, uh, does it all, as as I said, I guess in the the, uh, promo, uh, it doesn't have to be, mentors don't have to, you don't have to have a formal relationship, it doesn't, that's not necessarily what a mentor is, there are many more ways of mentoring people, so let's talk about that first. I think it's insightful of you. I think you're right. Most people think of a mentor as kind of a subordinate relationship where you as a mentee, you know, find someone much more successful, much older, wiser, educated than you are. And there is this sort of, you know, hierarchical relationship, a formalized relationship. And, And that can be true. And sometimes that's very valuable. But to your opening insight, Catherine, it can sometimes be informal. It doesn't have to be named. You know, we don't have to actually name the relationship, it might be, like you said, a casual conversation with someone that happens once or serendipitously. It, it also can be learning from someone that hasn't had major successes. They've actually had major failures. They've had, you know, bankruptcies or divorces where you can be mentored by them. Don't necessarily think your mentor has to be the most successful or wealthiest. I don't know about you, but I tend to learn more, Catherine, about how to, ha- how to have a successful marriage from people who've been divorced and had to earn more money and make my business bigger from people who've had bankruptcies because not all of us can replicate the success or talent or skills of our mentors. I like that idea you're proposing of mentorship can take on many different formats. Yeah. Well, just to answer your, I guess, the last comment that you made, I think I call them sometimes negative role models, that that's more effective. Now here, this is an example. This is kind of a trite example, I guess. But whenever I've, uh, well, let's say after I've had my babies and I wanted to go on a diet and lose 10 pounds, instead of putting up a picture of some beautiful model, which made me feel worse, I put up a picture of someone who was overweight or heavy or <laughs> and that would make me want to or help me to uh to, to lose weight i mean i, I that's kind of uh, as i say that's that that's the example though that you're right somebody who hasn't been successful taking a look at what they've done or haven't done is, is sometimes more helpful than somebody who's been very successful so 
but do we need mentors if we want to be successful, whatever, however we define them? I mean, if we want to be successful in, as I, in our professional life, our personal life, is that a necessity? Well, there's many paths to success, right? I mean, I think it's fundamental that part of becoming successful, however you define that for yourself, is learning and growing, having an insatiable curiosity, building your self-awareness, being open to feedback, uncovering and addressing your blind spots. These are all areas of our lives that can be improved by having someone older, perhaps wiser, smarter, more successful, or perhaps in some cases weren't successful, but the knowledge they had to share with us can make us avoid some of the pitfalls or potholes that they stepped into. So is mentorship a requisite for success? No. But either is an Ivy League education, either is a business degree, either is, you know, a course in entrepreneurialism. But all these things can obviously give us, you know, a leg up. So I strongly recommend if, if you've got an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, an intrapreneur, someone with a side hustle, anybody who's trying to do something, launch something, turn nothing into something, you're going to accelerate your progress by connecting with someone, again, formally or informally, that can mentor you, not necessarily on their path, but on yours. And I think, Catherine, it's often a misnomer. I think lots of mentors don't know how to mentor. They think their job is to tell you all the things that they did and then turn you into their mini-me. No, a mentor's job is to ask big, bold, open-ended questions to help you uncover what is your genius, what should your path be, and then share and teach either through their own successes or perhaps their messes in the hopes to help you avoid those. Mentorship and menteeship is different for each relationship. Well, you've chosen three, not three, you've chosen 30 individuals in this book. You've highlighted 30 of them who are mentors. So how did you go about choosing these 30 individuals, these 30 mentors uh, for the book? Well, as you mentioned in the opening, I am a 25-year associate of the Franklin Covey Company, the world's largest and most, in my, my opinion, prestigious leadership development firm founded by the famous author, Dr. Stephen R. Covey. I host their weekly podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller. It is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. It's about 7 million people each week after three years of consistent episodes. And we interview some of the biggest business titans, luminaries, best-selling authors, celebrities in the world, or in some cases, people who may not be a household name at all, but they've had an especially transformative experience that we think is valuable to people wanting to grow in their leadership skills. So after three years of episodes, I realized, Catherine, there were so many insights that weren't just shared on the air, but in some cases, they were shared off the air, you know, the one minute before we went live or the two minutes you know, after in the, in the green room, so to speak. So with their permission, I collated 30 people from kind of all walks of life, four-star generals, best-selling authors, celebrities, NFL football players, psychiatrists. And intentionally, I created 30 episodic chapters. You know, one chapter is with a neuroscientist on brain health. Another one might be with a best-selling author on your circadian rhythm, and others on your brand, others on how to use and how not to use PowerPoint. And they're fairly episodic. They, they're obviously different races and genders and ages and nationalities and industries. 
And it's sort of intentionally meant to be a little bit like Chicken Soup for the Soul. But I think this series, Master Mentors, where I have 10 volumes planned, will at some point highlight 300 master mentors, all of which have appeared on Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast. Yeah. Well, all of them, the 30 that you chose for this book are all kind of really fascinating stories. I kind of choose, and I want you to talk about the ones that I'm going to choose. Well, first of all, because two or three of them, or maybe more, have have been on my show. So I want to I sort of address those. I think you kind of alluded to, uh, uh, I mean, well, I want to talk about Daniel Pink and sure. uh, David Amen. I think he was on the show, Protect Your Brain. But let's start yep. with the first one. I don't know him. Nick Vujicic. How do you pronounce his last name? Vujicic. Yes, yeah. Nick Vujicic. This is, yeah, this yeah, is I a love, man. I, I love the ones you picked. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, so okay, good. I'm glad. Nick, let's, yeah. Yeah. Let's. So we have, we have, we have, we have uh, an interest in the same people. Um, Nick Vujicic is uh, Australian by birth, American by choice. He is, uh, like you and I, a, a podcast host. He is a radio host. He has written numerous books that have sold literally tens of millions of copies. He's a keynote speaker, inspirational speaker. How he differs from you and I, Catherine, is he has no limbs. Nick was born with no limbs, no arms, and no legs. He has uh, a head and neck like you and I and a torso, and his body ends at his groin area. And so Nick has built a life of, of incomparable wisdom and sort of contagious positivity about, you know, being grateful for what you have and not focused on what you don't. And I do not mean ever to minimize Nick's um, trials. I mean, Nick writes openly about how he has tried to take his life early in life several times because he saw no path forward and felt like he was a burden to his family. I mean, imagine being born with no arms and no legs. Nick is dependent on someone for everything, right? Not his mindset. Not his, not his paradigm, but for eating and bathing and walking and drinking and everything. He cannot do any of those physical features, functions that many of us without that disability um, can. So I, I met Nick. He was on a podcast with me, and we became fast friends. And he, this is a, you know, a major celebrity. Most of your listeners have probably heard of him or have perhaps have read a book or seen of him. Long story short, the chapter that I write about, Nick, is the concept of gratitude because I think it's a phrase we all talk about a lot. We throw it around a lot, our gratitude journals and how grateful we are. But I had nearly tr- never truly experienced gratitude until I was in Nick's presence in my living room. And I, I, I watched him you know, scratch his head on the sofa like a cat would because he can't scratch his head with his hands. And I saw myself picking up a glass of water reflexively, unconsciously, because I was thirsty. Nick can't do that. Nick has to have someone hold a glass up to his mouth. And I just became enormously real. It became just so, so, so uh, an epiphany, I guess you'd say, about how grateful I had never been for my arms and my legs and my fingers and my toes and my ability to you know, go to the restroom when I needed to go to the restroom or pick up a piece of bread and butter it and eat it. Nick cannot do that. So the big insight in the chapter was, if you want to build more gratitude in your life, Look at everything you do through the lens, not of I have to, or even I ought to, but I get to. I get to take out the garbage on Sunday evenings in the middle of the winter at 10 p.m. Nick Vujicic cannot take out the garbage. 
I get to brush my teeth. I get to get up and wash my face. I get to take a shower. I get to drive the kids to soccer practice and tennis practice and piano recital today. If you look at everything in your life, including the more challenging tasks, I get to terminate a member of my team tomorrow. Not I have to or I ought to. I get to because, you know what? This isn't the right role for them. I want to send them on their way to fulfill their mission. View every task in life not from I have to or I ought to, but rather I get to. And I think you'll find it transformational. Yeah, well, he definitely is, I mean, a transformational man. And I can I add this? I mean, he's married he, uh, to a, a – first of all, he's a very handsome man. Yes. Uh, but second of <laughs> all, he's, he's married to a very beautiful woman, and they have children. And he travels the world, and he uh, – it's yeah. – I was – and I <laughs> – I have to say, I was he just... Makes you and me look lazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It makes most everybody that I know looks lazy. Um, and he's a very religious man, because I think that does come into play. Or at least, and I was reading it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, you don't have to agree with Nick's, you know, spiritual views or politics to appreciate him as a model of gratitude for not what he doesn't have, but for what he's chosen to make out of what he does have. This is the person I've, I've met of all those in my life whose mindset, whose paradigm, whose beliefs drive him to accomplish amazing things that many able-bodied people don't even start to try. Yeah. Well, okay, let's go on to the next. Um, Daniel Pink. I interviewed Daniel Pink. He's an amazing man, too, in a very different way. So uh, let's talk about Daniel Pink and mentoring. Sure. So Daniel Pink is uh, a former uh, speechwriter for one of our U.S. vice presidents. He was you know, a, a journalist, I think maybe by education. I, even, I think he was an attorney. I went to law school. He's obviously the renowned author of numerous books, including famously Drive, most recently When, W-H-E-N, which is a book all about timing. And Daniel's a friend of mine. He's endorsed several of my books and just, you know, incomparably competent researcher and writer. He's one of those writers that, you know, every three years launches a book because he's immersed himself in the science and research behind him. And like Meek, somewhat episodically, he covers very different topics, you know, brain, brain function and then selling and then timing and then motivation. Well, I interviewed him on this book, Drive, and I'm embarrassed, Catherine, that, you know, I think I was age 51. I'm 53 now when I interviewed him, and I'd never heard of this concept about your own circadian cycle, right? Your own, the rhythms of your body, known as your peak, your trough, and your recovery. Now, I'd heard of the concept, but I didn't really integrate it into my life, and it wasn't really relatable until I realized, yeah, I have a peak, a trough, and a valley recovery every day. My peak is about uh, 4 a.m. to about 11 a.m. I'm a very early riser. I get up very early. I write my weekly ink magazine column. I write my books and my blogs early in the morning. You know, I'm then, you know, uh, a father for about an hour getting my kids off to school with my wife. I have a peak time between about 4 a.m. and between 10 and 11 a.m. And then I move into what I call the trough, what Daniel calls the trough, right? That kind of 11 to 2 period where I'm focused on lunch. My energy is kind of low. Tryptophan kicks in from my lunch. (laughs) Then I have a bit of recovery from around, you know, 2 to five or so. And again, this may not be transformational for everyone, but what for me it did 
was that it allowed me and encouraged me to think inwardly. Am I scheduling my day around my natural peak trough and recovery? Do I, does my, my creativity, my own level of genius, am I deploying it on the highest value things when my energy and focus and attention is the best, believe it or not, 4 a.m. to about 11 a.m.? And then other things that don't require me to be thinking, you know, with my full capacity, I do them during lunch or in the afternoon. You get the point. I have purposely now become much more deliberate around when I schedule which types of meetings. I've also sat down with the team that I lead and let them know this to say, hey, guys, if you want to come to me about a budget proposal, don't come at one o'clock, right? I'm going to be borderline narcoleptic. Not really, but you get the point. I've become very deliberate around scheduling my priorities around my natural circadian rhythm and making sure I know my team members and they know mine. Great example is I was coaching someone every day at 5 p.m. every week at 5 p.m. They were not getting my best contribution. I've just finished a 13-hour workday by 5 p.m. I've now moved them, horrifyingly to some people, to 5 a.m., and they're getting three times the value of me. This again. I have to interrupt you though, but that is that may be your circadian rhythms because yours are different than mine. As I'm listening to you, but what about the person that you are are mentoring? Maybe five o'clock is a.m. isn't good for him or her. So how do you work that out? Well, you're absolutely right, and we talked about that. He happens to be in Nashville, and I happen to be in Salt Lake City, so we are a time zone off. He happens to be a personal trainer, so he's up early in the morning. But you're right. In fact, I write about a colleague of mine in the book, in the chapter, who's more of a night owl. This person tends to work more from like, you know, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. And the problem with that was she was barraging me with emails in the middle of her day, but it was the end of my day. So I think there's just some, not, not forcing your team member to match yours, but you know, coming to a third alternative, recognizing what is theirs and what is yours and how can you get on the same page perhaps with a little bit of compromise, just that awareness of this team member recognizing if she wants my genius, she's got to get on my schedule before 11 a.m. Now, 11 a.m. is not 5 a.m., so that didn't seem unreasonable. But having that conversation has allowed this very talented colleague who's on a very different schedule than me maximize my genius and me still maximize hers without waking her up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's critical. I think it's critical in terms to be aware of what your rhythms are and when you have your peaks, your troughs, and your recovery because a decision-making and you're making big decisions or even little decisions, or, uh, whether it's at work or obviously in your personal life as well. And I, I'm very much aware of that, and it's interesting. That's why I, I actually chose this topic because I think I'm more aware of it now than I've ever been. And mine is the opposite of yours. I, you know, and I, I've, I've sort of, I, I share that with people. Uh, don't, you know, I don't want to discuss such and such at four o'clock in the afternoon because that's when I, you know, I, I'm, that's not my best. But I recover mm-hmm. at six o'clock. I feel great. I'm a night person, and then take me on through the night, and I'm great. Four o'clock in the morning. Please do not call me. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, but it is. I think it. Uh, it's really critical for the way we we organize our lives, I guess, in our schedules and in our, our, as you say, business. Um, so, uh, and Catherine that, doesn't require monumental changes, right? It's no, to sit down and kind of become more intimate with understanding what is your circadian rhythm, 
and then asking yourselves, you know, should this meeting at 2 o'clock really be at 9 o'clock? And should this meeting at 9 o'clock maybe be better addressed at 2 o'clock? Again, I don't know if you're going to have, you know, monumental swings, but there's no question each of us have a peak, a trough, and a recovery. And the more we are aware of that, the more we can talk about it with our colleagues, our partners, our friends, our associates, and also listen to theirs and get on a page that works for us both better. I do think this is a transformational insight that Dan Ping didn't invent, but he did, you know, uh, he did popularize it in his book, Drive. I have a question. What about, how does this fit into our uh, context right now with the pandemic? Because people's work habits are changing. Let's say many of them are work half-time at home in their own homes, their home offices, and then work, let's say, uh, you know, go, go to work. Uh, with others in an office outside their homes. So how does this fit, or how does this sort of concept of being aware of your peak times when you do your best work, how does that fit into that context? Well, more important than ever post-pandemic. And I would even take it a step further than what you even suggest, which is, you know, every company now in many ways is a global company. Maybe not, you know, truly global, but most people are doing business now in some form or fashion not just on different time zones, but at different continents. And so a lot of us, you know, it, it is not atypical for me to be giving virtual keynotes in the Middle East at 2, 3, and 4 in the morning. And I have to be thoughtful around, you know, what I do that day to reserve my energy as best as possible. So I think half the battle, Catherine, is an awareness. Sit down, a quiet place, and ask yourself the questions that I write about in the chapter, in the book Master Mentors. What is my peak? When is my trough? When is my recovery? How do I move some things around? How do I organize my energy and my stamina if I am commuting or telecommuting or I'm half, like you say, perhaps at home and half physically in the office? And it may change. So I think, I think uh, managing our time and our energy, I think, sounds like a cliche to a lot of people. It's probably never more important that we're in tune with our own needs so we can deploy them for the best for our brand and for those that we work with on our daily basis. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, to be honest, I think there are people that I haven't been able to hire because perhaps the, uh, one person in particular who was in New Zealand, I really liked the person, probably would have fit the job, but I, for, you know, it sort of takes in everything that we've been talking about. We'd never be on the same, the times, the time differences. Yeah, yeah. And, and I had yeah. to say no. Yeah. And, and that person agreed with me as well uh, for, as I say, for all the reasons that we've been discussing. Yeah. Yeah, so you do have to be aware. Catherine, kudos to you for not just being aware, but for having the courteous and straight talk conversation, right, where you really talked about the impracticality of it. I mean, I think people generally crave that level of courage and transparency and straight talk. So kudos to you for demonstrating a great leadership competency, which is just, you know, addressing the issue head on in a respectful and pragmatic way. Okay. Well, now let's talk about Daniel Amen. He's a doctor. He's a psychiatrist. Yeah, Amen. Yes. Amen. I always pronounce his name wrong, I guess. But anyway, he was on my show too. Fascinating guy. Uh, protect your yeah. brain. Um, that's. Let's talk about that. That's what he talks about. Protecting I, your brain. I'm elated that you selected him. So it's okay. There's lots of different uh, versions of his name out there. So you're <laughs> in good company. Um, okay. Dr. Daniel Amen is a a board-certified psychiatrist. He's also a neuroscientist and a brain imaging expert. I kind of refer to him as the Dr. Oz of the brain. He is the author of, you know, dozens of New York Times bestselling books. You probably know him 
your listeners may know him as a guest frequently on PBS. He's constantly doing fundraising for PBS. And he's also the founder of the nine Amen clinics around the nation. He is probably the most prolific uh, uh, imager of brains in the world. At the end of the day, what Dr. Amen is trying to communicate in my book, Master Mentors, is that most of us spend our time and attention when it comes to our health on the organs that we can see, right? The, the lungs and the skin and perhaps your heart, right? You can see these, you can see these organs on, 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 on imaging and, and x-ray machines, but rarely does anybody ever diagnose and treat the brain based on scanning and such. So he has popularized how important our brain health is, not just for our cardiovascular, not just for erectile dysfunction, but for our marriages, our relationships, because our brains... Catherine, hold on to this one. Our brains are really like jello. They're, they're kind of the consistency of tofu. And your brain is roughly the size of two fists put together. A little larger in men, not for any benefit, but it's a little physically larger in men, a little smaller in women, but roughly the, 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 um, the size of your two fists. And by the way, the size of your brain has no correlation to your intellect, obviously. <laughs> he says that our brains are like jello. And they're protected by this really sharp, pointy skull, kind of like an oxymoron. And he's just evangelizing the need for us to be much more thoughtful about how we protect our brains, like we protect other parts of our body, our eyesight, you know, what we eat. And that everything we do, our emotions, our feelings, our opinions, our sugar, our caffeine, our tobacco, marijuana, our exercise, all of this contributes to our long-term brain health. And that he sees countless patients, whether they are NFL football players that have had an attempted and hopefully unsuccessful suicide by the hundreds, by the way, whether these are very otherwise, you know, high functioning adults like you and I that might have been on their third or fourth bankruptcy or their third or fourth marriage or their eighth job and their spouse is wondering why they're so easy to anger or why they lose control. What Dr. Amen has found is that an astronomical amount of these, Catherine, are just very normal people that have an undiagnosed brain injury, as in they fell off their bunk bed when they were eight years old, and for 20 years it was never diagnosed, or they had a what was a, quote, mild concussion on the soccer field or the football field or in hockey, and it fundamentally changed the functioning of their prefrontal cortex. The big idea here is as parents, as uncles, as aunts, as grandparents, we have to absolutely insist, if it has wheels, you wear a helmet. If your child or grandchild or neighbor or nephew falls off a bunk bed, falls off a bike, you have to be thoughtful and careful about have they done any brain injuries, in injury? Have they, you know, are you watching them very carefully? And if you've got someone in your life who is perhaps behaving erratically, perhaps they're like I said, quick to anger or quick to you know, critique, it's often that maybe they have some kind of untreated brain function going on, deficiency, and they might need to see someone for professional care. What I, love I have to stop Dr. you Amen, there. We have 30 seconds left. This is fascinating, particularly uh, this was something that I had really had never 
thought about before talking to Dr. Amen. I, you're absolutely right. I want everybody to get this book because, uh, you know, we've only touched the surface. We've talked about, what, three people in the book, and there are 27 others. Uh, Master yeah. Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, and we've been talking to Scott Miller, who's the author of the book. Uh, you can learn. So so give us a website and our websites we can go to. because. Sure. You can find me at scottjeffreymiller.com. You can connect to me on every major social media platform. And the books that I've written, including Master Mentors, can be bought on Amazon or anywhere you read buy books. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Scott. Fascinating. Thank you, Catherine. Appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 